Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. You start. You start. <laughs> no, JF, I insist. <laughs> this weird when the one time that we've actually done a certain amount of preparation, we're stiff as hell. I think it's the fact that we know we won't have an intro, that this is the intro for this episode. Yeah, it's true. And I usually take comfort. It gives me a lot of courage knowing that in post, one of us will come in and frame whatever it is we're saying. So we can kind of just start anywhere. Yes. So as we've mentioned in uh, the last couple of episodes, this summer we went to the UK and we attended a conference called Diverse Intelligences Conference in Scotland. And then we no, went... Um, uh, Diverse Intelligences Summer Institute. Oh, uh, sorry. Uh, Summer Institute. And then we went down to Oxfordshire to participate in an experimental arts festival called Supernormal. What we're presenting to you today is the recording of our conversation there. Which went splendidly, I think. I'm very, very mm. happy with it. Um, yeah, me too. Yeah, the crowd was amazing. It was a great, great weekend. For everyone out there who's in the UK around August, you could do worse than buying tickets for the Super Normal Festival and checking that out. It's got all kinds of shit going for it. On a personal note, before we begin, though, I would just want to acknowledge the support of the Canada Council for the Arts, who made it possible for me to participate in this festival. I was super stoked that they, not only did they support the trip, uh, because evidently our Patreon money doesn't cover this magnitude of, of, event. <laughs> of event, not only did they uh, support it, but they also tacitly, implicitly, even one might say explicitly, declared that Weird Studies is indeed an art project. And also we need to thank Strange Attractor Press Mark Pilkington, particularly of Strange Attractor Press, uh, who invited us and arranged this, made this possible. Supernormal is mostly experimental music, all kinds of crazy subgenres, and uh, it was great to appear in that lineup. I think this year we were one of the only talks, at least I didn't see any other talks. But Yeah, I think it was relatively unusual, for, yeah. at least for this slate of offerings. So that was really fun to be there. Speaking of musical acts... There is one thing, dear listener, that you should be aware of before we yes. proceed. A band called The Plastics, a fantastic hardcore punk band. Love it. I mean, out of Brighton. Yeah, out of Brighton. Uh, came the in, mean streets of Brighton. They were stuck in traffic and they got to the festival late. It was a short 20-minute set and they started at the same time as we got started. And so the first 20 x minutes of the recording have musical accompaniment in the form of hardcore punk music it felt almost like one of those odd little intended events like some prankish god had listened to our duchamp show and heard me going off about punk it was like <laughs> time for you assholes to uh yeah to face what you fear yeah. Actually, though, you know, I listened to a ton of punk back when I was in high school, back when punk was cool the first time. And 
I actually really enjoyed the audio counterpoint of the plastics. At the time in recording it, I was tuning it out as much as I could because we had a show to do. But listening to the playback, to me at any rate, I I kind of dig it. Yeah. The whole unedited recording, which includes Mark Pilkington's unfortunately not terribly audible, but very generous introduction of us to the supernormal crowd, and the first just warming up remarks, and me also reading Werner Herzog's Minnesota Declaration. All of that stuff is cut from this here in the flag show, but if you are a Patreon subscriber, you can hear the entire thing uncut. Here you get most of our set picking up right after I finished reading the Minnesota Declaration, which we are going to read it again here. For all I enjoy the music, I think that there are probably some listeners who will find it distracting. And so what we're doing here today is we're just kind of doing an introduction that allows us to thank the Canada Council, that allows us to thank Mark Pilkington and the supernormal people and all that stuff. But it also allows us to kind of cover some ground in the first part of the conversation. That is to say, kind of summarizing and maybe expanding upon some things we talk about in that first part of the conversation that has the musical accompaniment, just so that those listeners who might be apt to find that distracting can jump to fill in the blank mark, whatever that is. And listen to the conversation in relatively high fidelity. Listeners who find the first part of this conversation unlistenable can just refer to the show notes where we're going to put the exact kind of timestamp, the exact point you need to go to to uh, listen to the part of the conversation that is not accompanied by hardcore pop music. However, if you're like me, it's kind of cool just listening to the whole thing and catching something of the vibe. I feel like you can almost sort of feel that very hot day, the baking, sunny day, the smell of hay and dry earth and fried, delicious Thai food. You know, some of the best Thai food I ever had, I had at a food kiosk after we got done with our show. So I feel like some of the sort of vibe of the show comes out in the live recording. Yeah. Plastics and all. We need to thank the plastics for agreeing uh, to, to allow us yeah. to release this because recording. of yeah. course they have copyright all, on all their music and they have kindly generously allowed us to release this despite the uh, technical issue of their presence i am prepared to say that the plastics are the official weird studies hardcore punk band i think so phil's already hinted at our topic we decided to discuss Werner herzog's 2010 documentary cave of forgotten dreams which, if you haven't seen it, we strongly recommend you check out before or after listening to this as a documentary. It's not really spoilable, so you can, you're perfectly reasonable to listen to our conversation and then go off and uh, experience this unforgettable documentary that Werner Herzog made 12 years ago now. The reason we wanted to talk about this documentary is that it is one of the most penetrating explorations I find of art that have ever been put on film, I think. Where we start things in this conversation is with a couple of wonderful lines from you. You, you, you always come up with these great little mo's, these bond mo's. And you refer to Herzog as a sentimentalist of darkness. 
somebody for whom the small print of the universe matters. And I think you say this because of the last part of the Minnesota Declaration, which takes a swerve into recognizably dark Herzogian territory. Yeah. Parenthetically, the Minnesota Declaration is a half-serious manifesto that Herzog wrote about documentary filmmaking. And we'll read this at the end of our intro. Just wanted that to be clear. Sorry to interrupt. Um, Please go on about my bon mots. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I like what you say. Actually, I'm going to read 10 and 11. The moon is dull. Mother nature doesn't call, doesn't speak to you, though a glacier eventually farts. And don't you listen to the song of life. We ought to be grateful that the universe out there knows no smile. And uh, the last bit, which is all about the hell of underwater life, what he imagines it must be a hell of constant, unremitting terror. All of this is the kind of stuff that we recognize from Herzog, right? Herzog is an artist, but he's also an entertainer. He does his stuff, and his stuff is saying shit like, we ought to be grateful that the universe out there knows no smile. And I think where we start is saying, like, why is this not nihilism? Which is why you say that you find him a sentimentalist of darkness. And also that things like what I just said or quoted from the Minnesota Declaration are Herzog kind of reading the small print of the universe. And as you put it, the large print, kind of the joy and ecstasy and wonder that we get from, for example, watching Cave of Forgotten Dreams, that's the large print. The small print is all of the, all the dark shit. As you say, the large print giveth and the small print taketh away. Quoting Tom Waits, unless he got that somewhere else. Um, oh, did Tom Waits say that? Yeah, the it's in Step print, Right Up print? on uh, oh. Small Change. That... Oh, that's really good. I didn't cite him in the show. I wanted to do that. I also, just as a, by way of illustrating this point, there's that wonderful line by uh, Melville from Moby Dick, which is, quote, though in many of its aspects, this visible world seems formed in love, the invisible spheres were formed in fright. I wish I'd thought of that one at the show, but that expresses, I think, what I was trying to get at with this idea of the small print of the universe. Yeah. So, you know, you say Herzog isn't a nihilist, but an artist trying to push meaning outside the merely human not the truth of accountants, but ecstatic truth. And ecstatic truth is the term that we are sort of riffing off of throughout this entire episode. Yeah. Another point that I want to highlight, this is in the part that the plastics aren't playing over or under, is something you say about this idea that nature itself is always participating in the act of art making. Yeah. Such that you can't really explain the beauty wonder and mystery of the Chauvet cave paintings without also including in that, without seeing nature as the first artist. Like nature engages in a kind of staging operation that makes art possible. And so that the mystery of art goes down to the bottom of nature, which means that you can't do what Herzog is doing and be a nihilist, no matter how dark and pessimistic he is. It can never bottom out in nihilism because he's always bringing meaning into the foreground. Meaning is always the thing that it's the meaning of things that make them dark, not the fact that they're meaningless. So the Chauvet Cave was discovered in the 1990s by a trio of spelunkers who, actually, I found this fascinating. They were looking for currents of air. Yeah. Because the area of France where the Chauvet Cave is, is riddled with caverns because it's limestone. And uh, it's actually sort of like where I live in Southern Indiana. 
southern Indiana, Kentucky, is all limestone, and it's all riddled with caves, and those caves, of course, contain goblins. Yes. And uh, <laughs> this is called back to our Hellier show. Yeah. Um, Anyway, so one way that you can find caves is if you can feel a kind of like a cool draft coming out from behind a bush that might hint that there's a subterranean passage. And they did find like a little passageway into this cave and discovered the oldest and most perfectly preserved collection of what is known in the biz as parietal art, cave art, art on the walls. So Chauvet was painted according to carbon dating between about 32 and 28,000 years ago. It was occupied over thousands of years, but not lived in, interestingly. And this is apparently not unusual for the decorated caves of southern France and northern Spain. The caves that people live in are often not the caves that were beautifully decorated and clearly had some kind of meaning, which of course is for the most part gone and inaccessible to us. Uh, because we're talking about something that happens in an abyss of time, 30-ish thousand years ago. And then after all of these paintings had been created over several thousand years in the Chauvet Cave, a rockfall sealed the cave from any further human or animal habitation until it was discovered in the 90s by this trio of spelunkers. And they quickly realized what it was they had found, contacted the French government. And because Lascaux has been badly damaged by indiscriminate tourism, lots of people in a confined space breathing, screwing up the uh, moisture screwing, balance of the atmosphere, probably. Breathing, screwing in those caves. Yeah. The French. <laughs> smoking gaudoise <laughs> yeah <exactly. laughs> wearing berets occasionally yeah. uh, spinning on a painting in disgust <laughs> <laughs> heckling the paintings <laughs> like the critics of can <laughs> i'm imagining a guy wearing a, a, a suit with a little bowler hat and a frilled umbrella poking at a painting <laughs> on the wall yeah. And composing a witty feuilleton yeah, on the way home exactly. in his mind. Another guy in the background just passing through, like walking his lobster. <laughs> <laughs> so we can only imagine that these sorts of things happened in the Lascaux cave, thus degrading the paintings <laughs> to some extent. So as a result, the French government locked Chauvet cave down. There has been a team of scientists and archaeologists working there for years. Even the scientists' actions and movements are very tightly controlled. So you have throughout the entire cave, and the cave complex is almost a mile long. It's quite big. There's a narrow, like a two-foot-wide-ish steel catwalk. You can only be there for you know a couple of hours at a time. Only a handful of people can be there at one time. And so Herzog was functioning under tight restrictions. He could only have about like four of his crew down there at one time. They all had to be wearing all this, you know, heavy gear. They could only carry lightweight digital cameras, which when you consider that this was filmed in the aughts, the technology was much cruder then. And so the camera images look kind of harsh and they have no warmth. Yeah. And the lighting that they had are just these big flat panels that give off a very hard, cold light. 
and also they could only spend a couple of hours at a time down there. All of these things are sort of accidents. But one of the things that we end up talking a lot about in this show is it's a line, and this is in the later part of the episode where we don't have the music playing. Something we talk a lot about in the show is how all of this feels in a certain sense staged. Not just staged by the people who made this art either, but also the geological forces by which this extraordinary natural terrain, the Pondark and the limestone cavern-strewn hills surrounding it, all of these things have turned Chauvet not into a thing, but an event, and an event that is still ongoing and of which we are a part. Exactly. And so if you think in those terms, then the restrictions that Herzog and his crew were forced to operate under lead to a very particular image, a look of this film, where you have these ancient images of bison and horses and cave lines and so on appearing under these bright cold lights in shots where the crew couldn't even get out of the shot. And so it's like, as we say in the show, it's actually strongly reminiscent of that scene in 2001, A Space Odyssey, where a team of scientists have discovered a space monolith on the moon, and it shows the monolith in a little dugout depression where the thing has been found, and you have a bunch of astronauts wearing spacesuits, posing, like gathering around it under these incredibly bright, harsh lights. That is an amazing image. And it's something like the image by which this art comes to our eyes, those of us watching this film. And as I say at one point during the music part of this episode, art is an alien technology. The image that emerges from this this staging of art that has taken millions of years to come to us is the staging of art as something fundamentally alien, an alien technology, like the 2001 space monolith. Exactly. And that truth, that ecstatic truth, to use the language from Herzog's Minnesota Declaration, emanates from the film precisely because Herzog was able to turn the constraints under which he was forced to work by the French government into the very conditions of the artistry of his piece. In other words, he he allowed himself to become one of the forces yes. that make Chauvet what it is. Because Chauvet's magical not just because of what of the paintings on the wall and the fact that those paintings have survived this whole time. They're wonderful and mysterious because we're interested in them. Right, Our very curiosity about them, our urgent need to preserve them, reflect our unknowing before them, the fact that we don't know what they mean, the fact that they are mysterious. Their mystery is our mystery. The mystery we glimpse on the cave walls is the mystery that inhabits us. It's the mystery that drives art. It's the mystery that drives religion. And it's the mystery, as we find out in the film, in the most wonderful ways, it's the mystery that drives science as well. Herzog inserts himself into the artworks such that he too, at the end, his film too, is part of the artistic complex, for the heck of a better term, the great staging that is the Chauvet Cave. 
And I think that that's because his way of thinking about these things, he's not a documentary filmmaker who's primarily concerned with reporting facts, although he does report facts. That's an instrument. That's not the goal. It's not the end. At the same time, he's willing to bend, to skew, to turn the facts upside down in the name of achieving, expressing what he calls ecstatic truth. And that's kind of what he's on about in the Minnesota Declaration, which we should probably now read in order to let people then enjoy the rest of the conversation or the actual recording. Let's do it. Lessons of Darkness. By the way, I'll say one last thing before I read this. This film is all about darkness. It thematizes darkness. The literal darkness of like a cave and what it is to look into a cave, like the experience of the people who first used this cave or the experience of the spelunkers who discovered it, peering into the darkness and seeing animals looking back at you. But there's also the darkness of what Herzog refers to as the abyss of time. And, you know, 35,000 years, man, it is hard for a human being to wrap their head around an abyss of time that deep, an abyss from which almost no historical knowledge can come. Although you can learn a lot, actually, and I've been reading a marvelous book by Paul Bond called Images of the Ice Age, which has a lot of very responsible speculation about what this art can be taken to mean or what we can learn about its creators. But nevertheless, If you are working in cave art, you are peering into darkness, both literally and figuratively, not just into the darkness of the cave, but the darkness of time. That's getting back to what we were saying about Herzog as a sentimentalist of darkness or as somebody who is uh, all about the small print of the universe, you know, darkness as a positive and not a negative thing, darkness, not just the absence of light, but as we've discussed in our in Praise of Shadows episode, in our House of Usher episode, a positive quality, a veritable something. What Herzog is doing, almost, this is a weird comparison, but have you ever heard of the Cremaster movies by Matthew Barney? Oh yeah, I love those films. They're really neat. Hard to find, or at least they used to be. Yeah. Uh, And so it would be an awesome thing to talk about on the show, but I don't know how I would ever lay my hands on a copy of those films. Anyway, the one I saw at a museum is one in which it's been a while. I'm not sure I'm remembering all this. And also trying to give details of a Matthew Barney film is like trying to recount a fever dream. But as I recall, he was wearing like a centaur costume. Yeah. Or satyr Satyr. costume. Satyr, yeah. With horns, with horns coming out the top of his head and, and really good prostheses, like eerily good prostheses it's in the back of a limo oh right and he's wrestling with somebody also wearing prostheses and you watch it and it's just watching some strange creatures wrestling in the back of a limo but you realize i only realized later the actual deal with that is that the limo there's a window like a moonroof window sky roof window that has frost on it because it was a cold day. And the piece was Barney scraping his horns against the frost on the inside of the window to make patterns, that that was the art. Mm. But it was art performed under conditions of restraint. He's being wrestled so that he can't lift his head up high enough to scrape his horns against the frost. That's how I remember it. Yeah, And apparently this 
Cremaster film was a part of a larger series of artworks that were all about art performed under restraint. Yeah. Art despite drastic limiting conditions. And Herzog is doing something kind of like that in this film. It's art under restraint. He is setting himself the greatest challenge of darkness, staring into a darkness so deep and impenetrable and all enfolding and seeing if he can get that darkness to speak to him. Nice. All right. And with that, I will now read (laughs) the Minnesota Declaration, Lessons of Darkness. Minnesota Declaration, Truth and Fact in Documentary Cinema. Number one. By dint of declaration, the so-called cinema verite is devoid of verite. It reaches a merely superficial truth, the truth of accountants. Number two. One well-known representative of Cinema Verité declared publicly the truth can be easily found by taking a camera and trying to be honest. He resembles the night watchman at the Supreme Court, who resents the amount of written law and legal procedures. For me, he says, there should be only one single law. The bad guys should go to jail. Unfortunately, he is part right for most of the many, much of the time. Number three, cinema verite confounds fact and truth, and thus plows only stones. And yet, facts sometimes have a strange and bizarre power that makes their inherent truth seem unbelievable. Number four, fact creates norms, and truth illumination. Number five, there are deeper strata of truth in cinema, and there is such a thing as poetic, ecstatic truth. It is mysterious and elusive and can be reached only through fabrication and imagination and stylization. Number six. Filmmakers of Cinema Verité resemble tourists who take pictures amid ancient ruins of facts. Number seven. Tourism is sin and travel on foot virtue. Number eight. Each year at springtime, scores of people on snowmobiles crash through the melting ice on the lakes of Minnesota and drown. Pressure is mounting on the new governor to pass a protective law. He, the former wrestler and bodyguard, has the only sage answer to this. You can't legislate stupidity. That was Jesse Ventura, by the way. Yeah. The gauntlet is hereby thrown down. That was number nine. Number 10, the moon is dull. Mother Nature doesn't call, doesn't speak to you, although a glacier eventually farts. And don't you listen to the song of life. 11, we ought to be grateful that the universe out there knows no smile. Number 12, life in the oceans must be sheer hell, a vast, merciless hell of permanent and immediate danger. So much of a hell that during evolution, some species, including man, crawled, fled, onto some small continents of solid land where the lessons of darkness continue.
So the last the last three items are there just in case you thought Herzog was getting sentimental with the ecstatic truth thing. Um, but Herzog is a sentimentalist, I think. Uh, he's a sentimentalist of darkness. He he um, he uh, he loves the tragic condition of. Uh, we humans who are trying to find meaning out in the cosmos, and the cosmos provides it and then takes it away. Um, he's really into the small print of the universe, you know? The small print of the universe? Yeah, large print giveth, small print taketh away. Small print is the deep sea where um, uh, fish are devouring one another constantly. It's, it's out of the way. You have to read very closely to see it. But when you see it, it kind of overwhelms the large print, and you realize that... There's a side to nature that's quite scary. And I think that has to do with uh, his idea of ecstatic truth, what he's trying to reach through, yeah. through his films. Well, fear has its ecstasy as well as joy. Correct. And I mean, one thing you can say that Herzog might uh, be attracted to the darkness, but at least it isn't boring. It's never boring. Right. And he's never forgotten the very strange paradoxical fact that meaninglessness is so full so profoundly meaningful when you encounter it head on <laughs> um, but meaninglessness fills you with a sense of meaning somehow but you know darkness darkness is not simply a negative quality the absence of something it can be a positive quality it can be a solid presence we talked about this in fact in our last show which is about Edgar Allan Poe's fall about the House of Usher. A sense of a kind of velvety black, thick darkness, a, like almost a gelatinous darkness that fills the frame of that story. And my impression of Herzog is that that darkness, that positive darkness for him is full of ecstatic truth. It's, yes. Yeah. It is not, it's, it isn't nihilism, it isn't being like, well, you know, it all comes down to nothing in the end. To him, it is a very profound something. I've always seen him as not so much as a nihilist artist, far from it, but rather as an artist who's trying to, to push the, uh, the realm of meaning outside the human, the merely human, to find uh, affordances of significance and, and, and meaning, let's say, um, outside the ambit of the, you know, what he calls the truth of accountants, the simple uh, corresponding truth idea that uh, if we just understand the world, then the world will make sense. But understanding the world is not enough for Herzog. We need to go further than that. Yeah. yeah. And this actually brings us to the film that we uh, decided we would talk about in connection with his Minnesota Declaration, Cave of Forgotten Dreams. Documentary he did in what, 2010? Something like that. Something like that, about 10 years ago on the Chauvet Dave in France, which is the most comprehensive collection of uh, Paleolithic art and also the oldest by a long shot, uh, somewhere between 32 and 35,000 years old. Uh, and the mind boggles at the abyss of time, to use a Herzogism, the abyss of time opened up simply in the contemplation of that. And Herzog approaches, he had, you know, sort of ascension of the French government to create a documentary about the Chauvet Cave, which is otherwise very strictly controlled. People can't really go in there because it's very delicate. 
um, the you know breath of tourists would destroy the um, destroy the art on the walls. And so you were fortunate to have a connection to it, to, to have an, a, an access to it, an entree to it. And the impression I get from watching this film is of somebody who is peering. You know, like when you're a kid and. Uh, remember it like lying in bed, unable to sleep, and uh, dressing down on the back of your chair begins to look kind of like a monster. Oh but, yeah. But you can't tell. You can't quite tell. You can't quite decide if it's still your dressing. You know that you put your dressing down there, but it might have turned into a monster. And so you look, you look, you look. I'm not getting out of bed to go and check. No. Uh, but. You, you're peering into the dark, trying to see something, and this, to me, is something both literally and figuratively true of Herzog's relationship to this cave. That he sees it as he, he is fully alive to the imaginal truth, the, the ecstatic truth of a cave, a dark place deep in the earth. In this case, uh, cut off from human knowledge for twenty-five thousand years by a rockfall, and only accidentally discovered by a trio of spelunkers. Um, in the 90s. So it's so, but he is literally peering into the dark to see these animals painted on the walls, but also the abyss of time is the real darkness that he is trying to peer into, and he's peering and peering and peering, and I feel like the thing that he can't get over is like the incredible depth of time. Yeah. And the feeling of this depth of time is something, on the one hand, you have this art, you can see it, it is expressive of something. It is beautiful, incredible art. And yet, we know nothing of the people who made it. No. 35,000 years. It's a wonderful, the opening of the film is so interesting to me because when you see the scientists setting out to go back into the cave and continue their work down there, I kept getting the sense that I'm watching the astronauts on the moon in 2001. Yeah where they're, what they've discovered isn't a human artifact at all, but something so, so, so profoundly abyssal in its origin that it's almost, um, it would be, a, it would be a, a boring factual truth to remember the humanity of these artists. In fact, what we, what we encounter in this art is the, the non-human in them and the non-human in us. There's something like the, it's almost like the scientists are going to investigate some, like they've discovered some kind of alien uh, artifact um, buried under the earth and they're going to try to figure out uh, what it means. And as the film progresses, you get the sense that these scientists really, what they're really after is the nature of the human. Like we're, we're looking through time into this strange mirror of art and trying to figure out what it is that's speaking to us, knowing all the while that it's us doing the speaking, and yet we don't know, we don't know who we are, we don't know where the signal is coming from. All we know is that it's pointing at something, and yet the mystery maybe, maybe the mystery is the thing it's pointing at to, to a certain extent. You know, we kind of have to make our home in that. But uh, I find the film very, very evocative in showing us the imaginal uh, dimension, not just of the art, but the imaginal uh, dimension of science itself, you know, yeah. of, of paleontology as an enterprise. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, okay, so at the beginning of the film, Herzog makes clear the restrictions that he and his crew were operating on. First of all, really limited crew, only four, and they were unable to use professional cameras, too heavy, too big, too clumsy. 
So they had little digital cameras from the like earlier generation digital cameras, which are the quality of image you get is greatly inferior to stuff you can just buy at a, a, a Best Buy or something uh, nowadays, right? Um, plus, also, the cave is long and thin, the better part of a mile, with right at the end an extraordinary chamber, the, the what's it, the Chamber of Lions. Yeah. And um, everything in this cave, because it, is, because it was cut off by a rockfall for 25,000 years, perfectly preserved, animal bones, uh, calcite crystals from eons of dripping of uh, limestone-rich water, uh, that glitter like a carpet of jewels. Um, the uh, some extraordinary things like there's a, a piece of rock with a cave bear skull set on it, so that when you enter the cave from what would have been its original entrance, that's you see it facing you. And they have tried and, and learning the lessons of. Um, uh, Lasco, which has been almost destroyed by um, the overuse of the site. Too many people, too much breathing mold on the paintings that can't be gotten rid of without actually destroying the paintings. Um, French government locked it down almost immediately upon its discovery. And so now when you go down, you have these strict, um, these strict limitations, small crew, primitive equipment, these flat panels that give off a hard, cold light, so they can't do nice lighting. And also, for the entire length of the cave, which is the better part of a mile, it's a narrow catwalk, about a steel catwalk, about two feet wide, that follows the path of the original spelunker. So they doubtless, you know, crunched a lot of those delicate calcite crystals as they were just walking around. And so, like, it's this one path, and so he's like, we can't get out of the way of shots, we can't light it properly, uh, the image quality itself is degraded. But the thing that's great about it is that Herzog kind of catalyzes all these limitations and turns it into an image. You know, yeah. what, what Jack Smith would call a flaming image, although it's very different from the kind of image that Jack Smith by a flaming image, but something that's hot, that like blows your mind. And it is exactly what you said. It reminds me of the scene in 2001 where they find the monolith buried on the moon and they show this monolith, this thing beyond human knowledge and understanding, sitting there under harsh lights in this open plain where they've excavated with the scientists all wearing spacesuits. They were reenacting that scene. And of course, they weren't reenacting it for artistic purposes. They were reenacting it for you know, purposes of preservation, for good scientific protocols. And yet, it ends up being, just as you say, the imaginal dimension of science. Yeah. This extraordinary interface of the modern of us, but with, you know, wearing our wearing our suits, our our our. our our apparatus, yeah. our our, our technological prosthesis, picking our way through this alien world of art, and art is an alien technology. You know, um, Picasso. Uh, this is probably apocryphal, but Picasso um, is said to have gone to the Lascaux caves, and when he emerged from the caves, he said they invented everything. Like the first artists figured it out. From, you know, like yeah. basically, like we, art, never, we art never added art. nothing important to yeah. what they did, and and it's 
I find that particularly true when I look at the images in Cave of Forgotten Dream. Um, there's something so profoundly modern uh, about these images, something so, like for lack of a better term, um, mature or um, uh, deliberate, um, uh, a chosen style, right? a style that evokes exactly what an artist might want to evoke, a kind of visionary uh, feeling. And also, another thing that's really impressive is that, as, as Herzog points out, is that many of the, anim the animals are not depicted realistically, although it's clear from the, the craft that they could have. In fact, in, in certain cases, it, it, it's actually quite realistic in its depiction. But the point was to, to show the animal as not so much, to my interpretation, as a, a static being. Like, here's a horse, here's an auroch, here's yeah. a... But rather, the animal as a as a as an event of becoming in the world so that you'll see for example the the horse is like or the buffalo is moving its head so they'll have like several images to indicate the kind of uh, progressive movement of a uh, bull's head um and uh herzog calls it proto cinema yeah. <laughs> and um and you get this feeling and also the way they use the surfaces of the cave to try to to to, to work to make that work with the design such that the uh, uneven surfaces on which these images appear contribute to the sense of movement and, and life that you're getting off these these images. So all this to add to the uh, sheer mysteriousness of the find. But you know, in a way, what we're trying to get at here is is trying to get back to the Minnesota Declaration is is Herzog's idea of ecstatic truth and, and its opposition to factual truth to the right. truth of accountants. And this sort of ecstatic truth is something that art. Um, I think uh, opens opens up for us um, and uh, the cave the the absolute absence of context in which these uh, cave paintings appear to me only drives home something that's ever present in art um, and I've experienced it here this weekend um, the sheer strangeness of aesthetic expression and the yeah. way that it's speaking on levels that uh, that the, the, the so-called truth of accountants uh, doesn't never touches, right? Yeah. Um, layers of truth that have nothing to do with, uh, with facts, although that doesn't mean that they are opposed to facts. And that's an important thing to say in this day and age. <laughs> and indeed, in 2017, Herzog uh, appended a, a, a few extra lines for the Minnesota Declaration in the wake of Donald Trump's election, wanting to point out, we're not post-facts here, right? But he's interested in looking at the same thing, say the same set of facts. I mean, the cave is what it is, right? The cave is the cave, but it will appear differently under the aspect of factuality, under the aspect of science versus under the aspect of ecstatic truth. And indeed, I think that his notion of ecstatic truth comes out all the more clearly by virtue of the fact that he is in respectful engagement with science. So for me, one of the most interesting moments in the film comes relatively early on when he's talking to Julian Monet, an archaeologist uh, who, with a background in circus performance, as it turns out, who has dreams about lions. So like, as I said, the last chamber of this cave is um, the, the chamber of lions, so-called because it's full of images of cave lions, an extinct kind of massive and scary cave lion. Um, and other things as well, including there's a a big, I don't know, is it stalactite or stalactite? What's the one that hangs down? Stalactite hangs down. Stalactite, okay. There's a trick in French to remember that. 
Yeah. Stalactite T is a ceiling. Oh. So. Okay. Yeah. So. Very good. <laughs> Might be useful. So, you know, something that JF already alluded to, the fact that it's not just like the way we might think of a painting where I'm like, okay, I'm going to buy my piece of canvas and, okay, that's the surface on which I'm going to paint my representation. The cave is, uh, the cave and the paintings on the cave walls are all of a piece. In a sense, the entire cave is the artwork and not just the things that people have purposefully put on the walls, but all the synchronicities of like the water flow over the millennia um, and in the formation of new uh, kind of crystal formations that the original inhabitants of the cave never would have seen. Um, the, you know, the, the, one of my favorite bits is there's a cave bear skull. There's cave bear skulls all through this thing. Uh, and there's a cave bear skull that was sitting right where there's a drip for thousands and thousands of years. And over time, this thing has morphed into this H.R. Giger yeah. alien skull. Like this skull covered in this, what it looks like a melted, like melted butter or, or pancake batter, but glittering. And, um, and it, hard, it hardly looks like a, it looks like an abstract skull. It's a nightmare skull. And yet it's incredibly beautiful. And it's a, it's, it's a synchronicity that brought that about. But everything in this whole cave is, is the coming together of such synchronicities. I, I, yeah, art, art does that, you know? Yeah. Uh, if you um, find an alleyway no one pays attention to, but you create some kind of graffiti in there, and suddenly it's not just the graffiti that's the art, but the graffiti calls forth the alleyway as a place. As yeah. A, and, and the alleyway gains a kind of aesthetic existence that it wouldn't have it hadn't, if it hadn't been marked. And obviously the cave is transformed by the presence of this art. And that's something that we forget in this age of galleries and museums is that we try to create neutral environments that don't interact with uh, the art objects that inhabit them. But um, throughout history, art was always in a world and always already inside in a cultural setting uh, or on a landscape. You know, Martin Heidegger writes beautifully about how the, the temple does not just con contain the statues that it houses. The ancient Greek temple contains the surrounding landscape. The surrounding landscape becomes part of the temple in a strange way. A film that really, um, I find, uh, um, communicates that strangeness is uh, Kubrick's, another Kubrick film, Kubrick's The Shining, where the Overlook Hotel, uh, in a weird sense, if you pay attention to the film, I feel at the dream level that the mountains of Colorado are inside the hotel that the hotel, the presence of this building on this mountaintop somehow transforms everything around it, such that the background to the hotel, the mountains, are inseparable from what's in the foreground, the hotel itself. And, you know, by extension, Jack Nicholson's um, uh, rather disturbed and troubled mind. Um, so there's art transforms things you know it changes environments it makes things possible that weren't before it calls our consciousness to become aware of aspects of the world that would otherwise remain probably unconscious you know and uh yeah you know i can make a connection to where we are right now here at uh Bra is this, we call this brazier's park i only just got Brazers, here yeah yeah i only just got here so i'm still getting used to it but it's still seeing like 
There's, there's not much of a camper. No, I'm, yeah. I'm the squarest person in this whole area. Uh, but like, I'm just like walking around and saying like, there's art, people are making art like a, a pear tree, pear tree makes pears, right? This place is just like, it's all art, super saturated with art. But like, it's inextricable from the grounds in which the art is taking place. Like, it's the scene. What's the artwork? Like, you know, individual artworks, like the set that we just heard, um, but, or the paintings and sculptures that you can see up in that, that pet, sort of pavilion over there. But like, okay, imagine hypothetically some future point, somebody mounts uh, a, a super normal retrospective and we're all very uh, respectable people, right? And those pieces of art are on the walls of one, that sort of site neutral kind of art space. And say like, yeah, those are, I recognize those from the 2022 Supernora Festival. But you've sort of severed it from the totality of it seen, the totality of the, the set, a festival like this, or like Woodstock 69 or whatever. I mean, the participants of Woodstock are actually very self-consciously aware that, yeah, there can be recordings made of the sets that the musicians do, and indeed there were, like including Jimi Hendrix's famous performance of the Star Spangled Manor, which is not a classic. But people were very aware at the time, like, yeah, but kind of had to be here. The real artwork is this emergent phenomenon of all of us here. All of which is to say, cave, the, the Shogak Cave is that kind of a deal, except 35,000 years old, cut off from us from an abyss of time. And I never got to talk about this amazingly interesting exchange between Herzog and right. Monet, so I don't know return to that. So, in um, talking to him, let's say, in, in uh, Herzog talking to Monet, he is trying to get Monet away from the flat recitation of known facts about the site. And I think Herzog is a very insightful guy about human psychology. He must have known that Monet was the kind of guy who he could kind of pull over into the realm of ecstatic truth. And Herzog is sort of poking him a little bit and saying like, well, you know, you have like millions of points of data because they have this huge digital map of the cave that they map every square millimeter of it um, with, uh, they've, uh, they've mapped it digitally. And he's like, well, you know, you have like 4 million points of data here. He's like, but it's, what we're talking about is sort of like Manhattan telephone booth, uh, telephone booth, telephone book, right? Telephone directory. Uh, let's say you have 4, four million um, and he actually, this is a quote. He's like, it is like you are creating the phone directory of Manhattan. Four million precise entries. But do they dream? Do they cry at night? What are their hopes? What are their families? We'll never know from the phone directory. And Monet responds, we can only create a representation of what exists now. And this is true from the point of view of the facts, facts right. which Herzog is not disputing, but that thing of Herzog like looking into the dark, trying to find the truth in the dark is not just the representation of what exists now. It's, it's, he, it's knowing, knowing something of the people that made this, something of the intelligence that the cave represents. And what happens then, because he then he pushes Monet, who's a scientist, but we learned he was formerly a juggler. So he has a, pushes him to try to say, well, what, you know, 
what else is going on there? And then Monet comes up with this wonderful story. I'll let you tell it. Yeah, he says that he was um, originally, you know, he was doing this research and he started having dreams of lions. Every night, dreams of lions. Some of them were the painted lions in the chamber of lions. Some of them were actual lions. But every night, without fail, dreams of lions. And he had, he says that he had to withdraw from the project for a little while to uh, absorb it, as he says. That he needed to process this. There was something going on in his psyche on this kind of like deeper imaginal level. And what's really interesting is Curtis like, asks, well, were you scared in your dream? And Monet's like, no, 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 no. He's like, it was a feeling of powerful things and deep things, a way to understand things that is not a direct way. Yeah. And that's the Minnesota Declaration, ecstatic yeah. truth as opposed to the simple factual truth of the scientists as, as, uh, as productive and as, um, as, uh, as, as essential as that may be. Yeah. Yeah. Then, and, you know, ultimately, we were talking about the setting of a work of art, uh, the background, the place in which it appears. But ultimately, the place in which all art appears is the psyche, uh, the, the psyche of the individual person experiencing it, the psyche of the species making and experiencing it um, ourselves. And uh, it's very hard to... Um, to, to separate the idea of art, especially considering the language it speaks, to separate it from a kind of dreaming, a dreaming that through the manipulation of matter, we humans have managed to make shareable, communicable to one another, you know, that we are dreaming together through art. And that, uh, that, that this shared, conscious, deliberate dreaming that art represents might actually be as uh, fundamental to what we call civilization as anything that um, accountants or archaeologists are doing, you know. But you need, I feel like you need to, uh, the polemical side of the Minnesota Declaration, which is like this order of truth, is he saying it is superior to facts? In the realm of art, he's saying it is superior to a merely factual approach like cinema verite. I don't know who was particularly taking aim at there, but... Yeah, I'm assuming he's taking aim at the old cinema vérité crowd, but I find that they, their films tend to be filled with ecstatic truth. But he's a cantankerous German who doesn't like French people, probably. I wonder if it's one of those like narcissism of small differences deals. Probably. Because yeah. it's a French, short distance. French, France and Germany tend to... Well, yeah, there's that. He's susceptible to the narcissism of small differences, but... Yeah, I think so. I, it's not. It's not about rejecting fact. Um, it, it, it's just about making room for the type of truth that that emerges out of artistic, aesthetic, imaginal experience. Well, I mean, coming from the United States, as I do, as a Canadian who's lived in the United States for a long time, those words have a lot of resonance for me because there is a sense in which that ecstatic truth has to be defended against oh, yeah. those who would simply deny its its existence and its possibility. Just like a lot of people in academia, like I'm in academia and trying to explain what it is I'm doing these days. Trying to say, for example, that in a certain sense, as Herzog says clearly throughout this film, that the show decade is in a sense an event that has been staged, right? Talking about like not just the 
figures on the walls, but the totality of the cave, the history of it, the fact that it was sealed off 25,000 years ago, the fact that there's that cave bear skull sitting on, under, like, that looks like the HRD or alien, there's the other skull that's on this sort of plinth, you know, or an altar facing as you come in, like all of that, the totality of it, and also the placement of the cave in the French landscape. Hmm. It's uh, near, this is about a quarter mile away from the Pont d'Arc, which is a naturally formed arch. Uh, the river, through aeons of its flow, has carved a perfectly beautiful symmetrical arch. And the to, to, to speak of that as an aesthetic event that has taken 35,000 years to come together, to be to finally to happen, to appear right. and emerge as an event. It's a verb, it's not a noun, it's not a thing, it's a verb, it's an emergence. Yeah. Um, yeah. Makes, was that? <laughs> ritual, ritual. You just blew my mind, man. <laughs> that is an awesome way to think about it. The enacting of a ritual. I can think how crazy this is. Well, I mean, sorry, but just to, uh, I'm sorry. No, no, please. Um, the arch, right? The Pont d'Arc. So there's this arch, and at the beginning of the film, Herzog's like, um, I'm going to start trying to imitate it, Herzog. I'm just going to say this. Oh, no, I think you should. It looks like a, <laughs> like a Wagner opera. <laughs> He's talking about the landscape. The landscape looks like a Wagner opera. Yeah. Like, oh, okay. Um, it seriously oh, so looks like what I imagine at the beginning of Das Rheingold when the world right. is created uh, in front of our eyes on stage. So, in other words, this art doesn't just include the cave in which you know, and the uh, the calcite and all that stuff that 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 surrounds the the images in the cave, but the art began with this location, with this tremendous aesthetic um, uh, creation that was this 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 arch, um, which nature made. So nature being the first artist. You know, like, yeah. in, in the book I wrote, there's a line that people always ask me about that line, and um, I, I hate answering the question, but um, I, I, t I find all these clever ways to do it. Um, the line was, uh, art didn't invent, uh, sorry, Humanity did not invent art. Art invented humanity. And people like to ask about that because I think, well, it's properly a weird thing to say. But I think we see it in this film. I really think, like, for example, there are no human figures in the cave art. There are no... Um, except for that stealth Well, I'm, I'm getting there. Um, <laughs> there are no human figurations uh, until the very later part of the, you know, because the art was made over thousands of years, then you see a woman's pelvis, right? Yeah. Pubis, kind the, of like on a stalactite. and legs narrowing in in exactly the same fashion as the various Venus figures that have been discovered in similarly ancient sites. So kind of narrowing. Exactly. Uh, uh, and so forming the, following the form of the stalactite. And of course, that sort of feminine uh, representation was very um, common at this time with all the Venus figurines that are found from the same period and all that. The point being that you can see the human figure emerge slowly from this artwork as though that's what they were looking for. Yes. And slowly, over thousands of years, as they painted lions and all sorts of animals and abstract designs, suddenly, slowly, the human figure starts to come out at them through their own art, much like we are studying the art now as paleontologists and seeing the origins of the human kind of come out at us progressively from this art. 
such that art might become the kind of non-human mirror in which the human glimpses its own image. Um, and maybe it's impossible for us to think ourselves without engaging at this level with the poetic and the ecstatic. Maybe that's just what we are. Um, and, and, and the work begins, begins long before humans appear. The work begins when water, the, the river carves out that arch and produces right. this image that the human eye will be able to perceive as um, a Wagner opera. Well, you know, I was going to say, this is, I just love this idea so much, a ritual, a, a, a ritual that has taken 35,000 years to be enacted, but actually millions, because the geological timescale in which the Pandar would have been formed, of course, is much, yeah. much deeper even than human time. This is the entire, this is, I wrote down his monologue about this, and I'm going to read it out because I feel like it, it, it says a lot. It says a lot of what we're saying. Sure. There is an aura of melodrama in this landscape. It could be straight out of a Wagner opera or a painting of German romanticists. Could this be our connection to them? By, and by them, he means the, those artists who created the art, art in Chauvet. This staging of landscape is an operatic event. I want to emphasize that. This staging of landscape is an operatic event. It does not belong to the romanticists alone. Stone Age man might have had a similar sense of inner landscapes, and it seems natural that there's a whole cluster of Paleolithic caves right around here. So he's sort of saying, like, okay, so a classic move of um, the, the modern intellect, of, you know, ac professional academic work, and I'm not running it down, but it would be to try to create a minimalist toolkit of understanding that would keep the number of irresponsible and excessive meanings to a bare minimum, right? Say no more than what can positively be known. And so one thing that in this dispensation, we would want to avoid saying would be like, oh, this is, would have been a place of power, a special site. Uh, how, how could we know that this would have been a place of power? How could we know that there would have even been any spiritual import to these paintings? Perhaps that's just graffiti. Just over thousands of years, people paint things and move on, and it doesn't mean anything in particular. And perhaps what we really want to know is something else. Uh, you know, like uh, we, we want to know scientific things about the origin of the human species. Right. Again, I'm not saying that like it's a bad thing. But to say, um, as Herzog does, like this staging of landscape is an operatic event. The choice of words is so interesting. It's just almost as if the Pondar was hollowed out over all those millions of years in order to stage an event, an yeah. event consummated by our own presence. Although that's a presumptuous thing to say because who knows what is the, the final destiny of this cave. We're just participants in it like these people 35,000 years ago. Yeah, it's not over. I mean, we were just at a conference uh, in Scotland where... Um, it was called the Diverse Intelligences uh, yeah. Summer Sorry. Institute. Yeah. And um, what's really inspiring is seeing to what extent the sciences, uh, scientists seem to be converging on this idea that intelligence is um, distributed, that intelligence is not limited to human um, craniums, that it's somehow out there at large, um, including aesthetic intelligence, including yes. poetic intelligence, that there's something already always always already thinking in nature 
um, in some ways we, we don't really comprehend yet. Um, but um, like for instance, um, I was uh, reading about Corvid intelligence work. So uh, it's more and more interesting, of course, Corvid intelligence, the intelligence of crows. And it turns out ravens and crows and, and uh, blue jays, I heard, are jackdaws, yeah, a whole bunch of birds. And these birds are, are, are ridiculously smart. Um, you know, they can think, they can plan ahead, they can remember faces, they can, they can remember hold grudges. Events. They can hold grudges. I heard an amazing story that, uh, from a colleague about this recently. But the, the, the thing that struck me was that if you read all the Corvid intelligence literature of, let's say, the behaviorist years, like after the war to 1995 or something like that, or even 2005, you'll find a particular um, construal of bird intelligence which actually does not do justice to what these birds are capable of doing intelligence-wise. So it occurred to me that all along, the best sources on Corvid intelligence were the ancient fables and legends about crows, which assume that crows are able to remember faces, to hold grudges, to trick humans. This is, these are the facts, as, they turn, as it turns out. And so it, it's just, I, it struck me that um, our scientific uh, uh, need to reduce actually prevented us from seeing all that's going on in a crow's head. Um, uh, and that now we can actually learn from the ancient myths <laughs> which told us all about crows as, as tricksters. As tricksters yeah. And actually, those depictions are very, very much accurate. So I would say that's an example of an ecstatic truth that um, includes, but also exceeds the factual truths yeah. that were on the ground until very recently. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. I want to talk about um, how this film, well, I won't say how it ends. It's two beats before the ending. The, the, the way it ends is the long series of long shots of, of paintings that Herzog, much to his credit, like allows us long views of these paintings while we hear the music, the music of, oh, I forget the composer who composed a wonderful soundtrack to that film plays in the background. Uh, a, lot of uh, a lot of cello improvisation. Um, but there's a philosopher or thinker of some kind who is not named, at least I don't, at least I didn't take the name down. Who says two concepts that change our conception of the world emerge from the study of the Chauvet Cape and by extension are um, from outside the construal of the modern. Not that's my way of putting it, not his. Fluidity and permeability. Uh, so fluidity would pertain to our categories, particularly categories of human and animal. So, you know. Human is human, and, and animal is animal, and and you know you have like Deleuze and Guattari coming up with this idea of becoming animal, which we're pretty sure there's. I mean, I'm not talking about you, but like I, the way people in the academic humanities always talk about that idea of becoming animals, like well, it's a metaphor for something, right. um, but the idea that those categories might actually be permeable, that there is a becoming lion or becoming bison. To get back to that stout type, um, what's really interesting at the first episode of shooting that they did they weren't allowed to film the back side of it so you could see it from that uh two-foot catwalk but this room is so delicate and precious there's and um, there's no way for them to step off the catwalk to go and just film the other side of the stalactite so from the near side the side they could film you could see the 
you could see something of a human form, but a very imperfect or incomplete human form. But when they went back later, after the scientists had done the work and they had more time in the cave, they put a camera on a stick and extended it out. And, and you can see uh, the point of view of the camera, the image becoming manifested, emerging. Um, and it's actually the lower, the lower parts of a woman, as I say, legs and pubic triangle, and the head of a bison. And it's ambiguous because is it a minotaur? Is it a kind of human bi bison half? Theory of theory of yeah, yeah. Or is the, as Herzog suggests, the bison embracing the woman? But it's the spectacular image of fluidity. Right. Permeability is the world, as this guy in the film says, the world where we are, which is, you know, the world when you're walking around get a cup of coffee, go to work, come home, like material world, you know, causal world. What we normally just think of as reality, right? And then the world of the spirits. The, wherever it is those lions that Monet dreamed of. That world. Yeah. And, our, and in the Chauvet cave, our idea of the world becomes permeable. And this guy has this great line. He's like, a wall can talk to us, or a wall can accept us or refuse us of that. And something Herzog says towards the end, he was like, at the end, we were happy to get out of that cave. Yeah. So were the scientists, because we felt that we were interrupting the creators, the artists at their work. And we felt their eyes on us at all times. All right. That's it. <laughs> I think we have 10 minutes if everyone, anyone wants to, to, to pipe in and or ask a question. If you, you can use the mic or you can speak real loud. Thanks. Uh, just so I was just thinking about um, you were talking about the emergence, and the image that came to me about emergence was uh, working with AI, which I've been doing recently to make AI paintings, and how um, it's kind of interesting the way that like um, the computers working, obviously they're programmed by us, but they like they make so they take like a random field of dots and they make something appear out of it. And that's like one of the ways that the algorithms work. And I was thinking how similar that is to the process of the cave um, and using the surface. Um, and I'm wondering like, is the, are we watching the emergence of uh, non-human consciousness appearing out of the images that the algorithms are making, I guess. Yeah, brilliant. Yes, can I see? Yeah. Um, the uh, I, I was experimenting with uh, Midjourney uh, recently. It's a wonderful uh, neural network. That's it's it's quite uncanny um, what it does. And I, I agree. I mean, ultimately, I think that um, you could look at any divination system and see in it uh, a, a let's say maybe a slightly primitive version of the same thing. You think about the I Ching, right? Which is uh, permutations of two types of lines over uh, 64 hexagrams, uh, right? 
And uh, then you have an aleatory um, uh, method to try to pick out a hexagram and suddenly it speaks to you um, in this strangely um, intelligent voice about what you should do with your life. <laughs> so um, I think that my personal feeling is that intelligence will arise wherever it can. And, and, and we've created these neural networks that have just enough, uh, just the right uh, moving parts to allow that sort of emergent intelligence to, to manifest itself. Um, I think that that's a wonderful example of a, yet another example of we humans looking for our own image in in uh, in the non-human and finding it yet again through AI art. Yeah. We have a we have a question over here. Quick note to the listener: the next question came from Elsie, the precocious stepdaughter of Mark Pilkington of Strange Attractor Press. How does the bear skull um, have more than one spike on it. I don't get that. I thought it would just have this unicorn giant thing in all his heads. No, that's a good question. Yeah, so, I mean, I am only going from the image that I was able to see, but my impression is there might have been like a crack over it, so it's not just a single drip point, but like maybe a few. Sort of like when you see a, like a crack in the ceiling and sometimes it's raining really heavily, you'll get a sheet of water and sometimes you just get a drip, drip, drip. And my impression is there was maybe a main flow and a subsidiary flow. And so this is one reason why this skull looks so fantastical, that you have this, you're quite right, it looks sort of like a unicorn, this big thing sticking up out of it. But then you have these other uh, spikes and tendrils and underneath it all, the skull, the face, you can still see the eye sockets and something like the mouth, but the we're always interested in the face, right? But with the way that the skull has been covered by calcite over the millennia, uh, now the whole skull becomes this kind of, it's expressive. Do you know what I mean? Well, you know, you know, you know when you see an expressive face, you see somebody like they look really sad, mad or whatever. And we think like, oh, the expression's coming from just this, right? But the skull that's just been sitting there slowly being covered with calcite, the whole object, every part of it expresses something. I couldn't tell you what it expresses, but it makes me feel something pretty strong. You know it's like it's alive. It's like yeah, exactly. you're feeling that it's alive and looking at you. Exactly. Yeah, pretty creepy and really beautiful at the same time, which is... Yeah. Kind of our whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> we like that kind of thing. Yeah, come on up. Hey there. Yeah, really fascinating talk. Really good. Um, the question was on uh, when uh, Herzog says that the landscape is like a, a Wagner opera, and it reminded me of. It made me think about the cave. And then also kind of uh, modernism and um, kind of a post-industrial um, comparison. There's a really interesting book called Opera, Opera Modernism in the Cult of Mountains, which is about uh, the development of a German national voice through kind of yeah, creating opera and folk songs. And it references, do you know that painting Wander Above the Sea of Fog, which is the, the ginger dude, he's like stuck on that. It's this idea of a man kind of conquering uh, nature. You know, and obviously then that kind of represents the industrial revolution. But it's interesting in comparison to, you know, 
our idea of um, the Gather Society, you know, way, way back, and then mm. sort of in, in, deep within cave, uh, caves, and then almost somehow now modern life is on top of the mountain, like kind of caves and mountains. Is, what, what do you think of mountains in relation to? Do you know what I'm saying? Great, that's brilliant. Um, yeah, really. Like I'm going to hit that obliquely, um, but because you just remind me of something. That's brilliant. Obviously, when he says um, romanticism, is what he says. Romanticism. <laughs> uh, he's talking about the romanticism of this uh, this river and this landscape, and of course the mountains and that German ideal of you know the wanderer over the sea of fog, the human has conquered nature, and of course that's one side of the romantic. Nationalism yeah. comes into it, Wagner. The idea of surmounting yes. things. And yes. So sometimes um, art is is having its way with us, I think. For example, I'll give you an example from modern architecture, and you can relate it to German romanticism. I think it'll work. So lately I've been obsessed with brutalist architecture. Just uh, seeing the brutalism in the home, my hometown in Ottawa. It's a government town, so a lot of brutalism everywhere. So you know what I mean, like big concrete slab sort of architecture very imposing and a little bit reminiscent of that romantic spirit of conquest and of imposing our ego as a species on the world but what's what's interesting to me as brutalism has gone out of fashion and now the buildings are being neglected is how uh, the water erosion and the overgrowth the growth of plant growth is conquering the brutalist structures such that one is almost convinced that those those blank concrete spaces were simply canvases put there by these egomaniacal architects in order that nature may then complete the work by adding its own frescoes. And so, you know, things dissolve. The staging of an event. Exactly. So it made me love brutalist. I love brutalist architecture because I love it when it fails, when it starts to get swallowed yeah. back up again. And it shows, in one sense, it shows the futility of the projects of conquest. And hopefully we've learned a permanent lesson um, in Europe and in you know, European civilization about that now, hopefully. Um, but uh, um, it also shows the the childishness of that that heroic will to begin the, the the tragedy of it it was always doomed but now as as the creations of that era sink back into nature they too maybe get to be beautiful if only as ruins on the post-apocalyptic landscape yeah i see one i, I see that we are at 129 uh, yeah and so so this is probably the last thing yeah. to say but i have to drag Wagner into it because i'm a the hardcore Wagner, right? And Wagner's art has a lot more in it than people think. And there is, in Wagner, we all remember Ride of the Valkyries. That's like the theme song of the Western ego riding roughshod over everybody and everything. But there's an awful lot of mists and fogs in Wagner. So much so that it was like people would just constantly make fun of Wagner for constantly writing in fogs like the fog machine always working in overtime. And so in Wagner, you have those moments of surmounting and surpassing, which always end up being hubristic. And Wotan, the king of the gods, ends up being uh, the, the, the victim of his own hubris, um, his over, overweening ambition. And in a way, it is the, not the truth of like the perspective elevated, but another truth of envelopment. Um, that wins out so much in Wagner's operas. I'm thinking particularly of the Ring Cycle, 
Ryan Gold, Valkyrie, Siegfried, and Peter Um And so, and it is that romanticism, I feel like, is maybe the, the, the romanticism of enveloping darks, that plush, velvet, positive darkness that we started off talking about. That enveloping, that is the action of the, of, that Herzog is trying to capture, and I feel like it's also a current in art and romanticist art um, that we can, I don't know, I don't want to say learning from it, it's just sound didactic, but we can dig it. We can dig it. Okay, right, thank you so much. Thank you so much. <laughs>